Welcome. You are listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's better to hear it live, this is the place to catch the latest sermon, conversation, and select program. If you like what you're hearing or want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get a notification for our next episode. Enjoy and see you in shul. Shanatova. I didn't want to see the Barbie movie. I really didn't. The previews looked silly. And while I played with a few Barbies as a kid, I really couldn't understand the need for a whole movie about her. But then came the buzz. And so, not wanting to be left out of one of the summer's biggest phenoms, and as a huge fan of the director Greta Gerwig's earlier movies, I decided to brave the tidal wave of pink that accosted me as I entered the theater, and I took my seat. And from the opening sequence, I was hooked. I was in the movie's thrall. The scenery and the fashions, visually stunning. The writing was smart, witty, and laugh-out-loud funny. The casting, perfect to a T. But most of all, it was the movie's message that got to me. It moved me deeply. Now, you might think when I say message, I'm referring to the movie's commentary on gender dynamics, which I did find clever and compelling, but that's a topic for a whole other sermon. What I want to talk about today is the movie's commentary on perfection. For those who haven't seen the movie, let me step back a moment and summarize the plot. Early on in the movie, we meet stereotypical Barbie. She has the perfect home, the perfect clothes, a perfect body, perfect friends. She wakes up every morning, already beautiful, of course, to a perfect day, and basically lives a perfect life in the perfect world of Barbie land. But then, something strange happens. One day, for some unknown reason, she begins to experience an existential crisis, and thoughts of death seep into her thinking. Everything begins to go totally wrong. She wakes up to a cold shower. A patch of cellulite appears on Barbie's thigh. She burns her morning toast, and even her feet fall flat. These malfunctions, Barbie is told, are probably the result of someone in the real world playing with her too hard. And so off she goes in her perfect pink convertible with the Indigo Girls closer to find blaring on the radio to travel to the real world to find out what is happening. I won't share much more of the plot in order to avoid spoilers for those who haven't yet seen the movie, but let's just say that her trip to the human world helps her to discover herself and her true purpose. We live under a tyranny of perfection. We are bombarded with glossy images of people with perfect faces, perfect bodies, perfect homes, and perfect lifestyles, with the not-so-subliminal message constantly accosting us that this is what we should aspire to. We long for the perfect partner, the perfect job, the perfect house. And when we find them, we want them to stay that way forever, to never grow old, to never have the paint peel. We are taught to seek perfection in ourselves, to strive for perfect grades, perfect test scores, and perfectly impressive resumes. Mistakes are seen as a mortifying weakness 
and a sign of failure. We are taught to hide our flaws and weaknesses and present a perfect image to the world. The constant drumbeat of the message we received to strive for the unattainable goal of always looking perfect was the focus of a recent New York Times article entitled, Do Supermodels Age or Just Get Airbrushed? It was about the controversy surrounding the September cover of Vogue, which featured Linda Evangelista, age 58, Cindy, Craw Cindy Crawford, age 57, Christy Turlington, age 54, and Naomi Campbell, age 53, and ignited a debate about beauty standards. The article called out what many viewers saw as egregious age erasing with the promotion of women paragons of mature beauty whose years have been seemingly smooth from their faces, who looked so retouched that they seemed more like AI-generated bots than actual people. Certainly, images of models at every age are retouched, sometimes ridiculously so. But extraordinary is not the same thing as unbelievably perfect. Which means it's hard not to think that here was a lost opportunity to embrace all the hallmarks of our humanity, not to mention transparency about what we are faking or not. Fixing a wrinkle here or some crow's feet there, it may seem like a little thing, but it's part of what chips away at our shared sense of the truth. It's not just that it chips away at our shared sense of the truth, the problem with our obsession with perfection, as many psychologists have demonstrated, is that it's terrible for us. Its pursuit contributes to heightened anxiety, stress, depression, diminished self-esteem, and can make people vulnerable to suicide. It blinds us to our achievements while enforcing impossible standards upon ourselves. As Brene Brown explains in her book, The Gifts of Imperfection, Perfectionism is not the same thing as striving to be your best. Perfectionism is not about healthy achievement and growth. Perfectionism is a self-destructive and addictive belief that fuels this primary thought. If I look perfect, live perfect, work perfectly, and do everything perfectly, I can avoid or minimize the painful feelings of shame, judgment, and blame. Perfectionism is self-destructive simply because there is no such thing as perfect. Perfection is an unattainable goal. Greta Gerwig presents an alternative image in one of my favorite moments of Barbie. There's a scene when Barbie, who's feeling fragile after being brutally roasted by a teenage girl, sits down on a bench and turns to see an old woman, played by the legendary costume designer Anne Roth, who was 91 when the movie was shot. Barbie, who has never seen aging before because nobody ages in Barbie land, isn't repulsed by the aging she sees, but rather sees beauty in this uniquely human experience. She turns to the woman and softly says, you're beautiful. The woman, in a surprisingly countercultural moment, responds with confidence and self-affirmation by saying, I know. This scene is superfluous to the plot of the film, and Gerwig had to fight to keep it from being cut. She fought to keep it in because, in her words, it's the heart of the movie. She says, it's the first glimmer of humanity with the idealization of this as the ideal way that someone should look or be.
Unless you think I'm speaking just to the women here today, perfection is an equal opportunity scourge across all gender identities. Research shows that men feel under tremendous pressure by others to behave in a masculine way, to be emotionally strong, to show no weakness, that many men suffer just as much as women with body image issues. Men also suffer from societal pressures to provide and support their families financially. A recent study out of Duke University found that a young man's sense of masculinity is strongly dependent on other people's opinions and can actually elicit aggression. Our challenge is to embrace the ways we can most authentically show up in the world with our full humanity in tow, however that may look, which is the lesson of our Torah as well. Just look at our ancestors. While we regularly invoke their merit in our prayers, the Torah presents them as real human beings, shortcomings and all, with real feelings, real conflicts, and real failings. Sometimes they shine, and oftentimes they fall short. Let's start with Abraham. Abraham failed time and again when it came to prioritizing his family. We all know about the binding of Isaac, but there's also the story of what he did to his wife, Sarah. When he and Sarah went down to Egypt, Abraham feared that the Egyptians would murder him and take his wife. So he told her to say that she was his sister rather than his wife. Because of this deception, Sarah was taken to Pharaoh and let's just say things didn't go well for her. And if that wasn't bad enough, later in the story, Abraham goes off to sacrifice his son without a word to his wife. Sarah suffered from a scarcity mindset. She approached the world as a zero-sum game and was jealous and downright cruel to Abraham's concubine, Hagar. Isaac showed favoritism to one of his sons, while his wife, Rebecca, actually pitted one son against the other. Jacob deceived his brother, his father, and his father-in-law. Rachel worshipped idols, and Leah was characterized by jealousy of her sister. And perhaps most surprisingly of all is what we learn about Moses, the greatest of our heroes, and about whom the Torah says, never again did there arise a prophet like Moses, whom God singled out face to face. Moses is notable for his impatience and at times his anger. We first encounter it when we read of him descending from his encounter with God on the top of Mount Sinai, carrying the tablets upon which God had personally inscribed the commandments. As Moses descends carrying the two stone tablets, he sees the Israelites worshiping the golden calf, and in his anger and fury, he hurls the tablets from his hands, shattering, shattering the very words that God had inscribed. And then there was the time when the Israelites found themselves in the desert without any water. They bitterly complained to Moses that he brought them out of Egypt just to die in the wilderness. God instructs Moses to take up his rod, to speak to a rock, and to order the rock to provide water. Moses takes up the rod, but rather than speaking to the rock, Moses hits the rock twice. Water does indeed gush forth, but God is unhappy with Moses for not following his direction. As a consequence, Moses, after leading the Israelites for 40 years, is denied the ability to lead them into the promised land, or even to enter it himself. 
he is condemned to die in the desert. The great 20th century Torah commentator, Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch, in addressing the failings of our ancestors, explains that the Torah does not attempt to hide from us their faults, errors, and weaknesses, and precisely thereby, it places the stamp of credibility on the happenings. The fact that we are told about their faults and their weaknesses does not detract from the great men. Indeed, it adds to their stature and makes their life stories even more instructive. Had they all been portrayed to us as models of perfection, he says, we would have believed that they had been endowed with a higher nature not given to us to attain. In other words, the Torah presents our spiritual heroes in all their flawed humanity as individuals who struggled and sometimes failed because their failings are as instructive to us as their successes are. No one is perfect, certainly not even our most meritorious ancestors. The Torah, by not sugarcoating their characters, comes to teach that imperfection, struggle, and pain are what make us authentically human and what makes life worth living. We all make mistakes. It's part of being human. Or in the words of Brene Brown once again, the thing that is really hard and really amazing is giving up on being perfect and beginning the work of becoming yourself. Authenticity is the daily practice of letting go. Let go of who we think we're supposed to be and embracing who we are. Choosing authenticity means cultivating the courage to be imperfect, to allow ourselves to be vulnerable, exercising the compassion that comes from knowing that we are all made of strength and struggle, and nurturing the connection and sense of belonging that can only happen when we believe that we are enough. Authenticity demands wholehearted living and loving, even when it's hard, even when we're wrestling with the shame and fear of not being good enough. When we become more loving and compassionate with ourselves and we begin to practice shame resilience, we can embrace our imperfections. It's in the process of embracing our imperfections that we find our truest gifts, courage, compassion, and connection. There's a beautiful story in Rabbi Eddie Feinstein's book, Capturing the Moon, that takes us back to the time of Adam and Eve and their return to that perfect world, the Garden of Eden. It goes like this. After years of struggle with their children, when their children were grown, Adam and Eve decided to see the world. In the course of their journeys, they actually found the entrance to the Garden of Eden, now guarded by an angel with a flaming sword. They were frightened and they began to flee when God spoke to them. Adam, you've lived in exile these many years. Your exile is finished, God said. Return to the garden. And the gate to the garden opened. But Adam had grown weary these many years. Wait, he replied. It's been so many years. Remind me, what's it like in the garden? The garden is paradise, God responded. In the garden, there is no work. You need never struggle or toil again. In the garden, there's no pain. There's no suffering. In the garden, there is no death. Day after day, life goes on for eternity. Come, children, return to the garden. Adam listened to God's words. No work, no struggle, no pain, no death. An endless life of ease. And then he turned and looked at Eve. 
He looked at the woman with whom he had struggled to make a life, to take bread from the earth, to raise children, to build a home. He thought of the tragedies they had overcome and the joy they had cherished, the suffering they had endured, and the love they had found. And Adam shook his head. No, thank you. Not now. Come, Eve. Let's go home. And hand in hand, Adam and Eve turned their backs on paradise, turned their backs on perfection, and continued their journey. Turning our backs on perfection is not easy. Embracing our perfectly imperfect selves is hard. But even God doesn't demand or request perfection. God merely asks that we strive to do our best, to be our best. There was an article about Greta Gerwig in the New York Times recently in which the writer says, it's a testament to Gerwig's singular earnestness, a level of sincerity unavailable to many of us, that using Barbie to affirm the worth of ordinary women feels to her quasi-religious. She told me that when she was growing up, her Christian family's closest friends were observant Jews. They vacationed together and constantly tore around each other's homes. She would eat with them on Friday nights for Shabbat dinner, where blessings were sung in Hebrew, including over the children at the table. May God bless you and protect you. May God show you favor and be gracious to you. May God show you kindness and grant you peace. Every Friday, the family's father would rest his hand on Gerwig's head, just as he did on the head's of his own children. I remember feeling the sense of whatever your wins and losses were for the week, whatever you did or didn't do, when you come to this table, your value has nothing to do with that, Gerwig said. You are a child of God. I put my hand over you and I bless you as a child of God. And that's your value. I remember feeling so safe, she says, so safe in that feeling and feeling so enough. You are enough. Each and every one of us with our broken, imperfect, messy selves living our messy, imperfect lives is perfectly enough. As we spend this time together on Yom Kippur, contemplating and confessing all the ways we miss the mark, may we remember that despite our imperfections, we are all beloved and infinitely precious in the eyes of God. And may we find the courage to let go of who we think we should be so that we can fully embrace our vulnerable, imperfect, beautiful, and spectacularly authentic selves. Gamar Hatima Tova, may we all be inscribed for a good year.